Hello everyone, welcome to episode 810 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pock. This year we're chatting with the performers of the Cold Waves Aid Festival, running Thursday, September 19th through Sunday the 22nd at Metro and Smart Bar in Chicago. This year's performers include Pop Will Eat Itself, Nitzer Ebb, How Job, Filter, Chemlab, Severed Heads, Pig, and many, many more. Head to coldwaves.net for the full lineup and ticket links. This week we're chatting with Saturday Metro headliners Gray and Paul. This is Test Department. Hard choices, hard 
Paul and I had worked in some other formations before this department. We came out of the old punk movement and we'd seen that kind of get really commercialised and the, the original ideals of tearing down the rock and roll kind of hierarchy. And we kind of wanted to inject some of that energy, but with a truly revolutionary um, sound. Punk was revolutionary in spirit, but the sound was kind of rock and roll format. And we thought maybe we should be look at the change being in the music as well, in the, in the format of the band. And so we kind of outlawed the guitar from the beginning and we uh, decided to use percussion or drums and voice. At the time, we'd just moved back from Amsterdam and we were living in South London, surrounded by the early 80s derelict sort of wasteland of as the manufacturing industry was kind of dying in London and across the country. And there was lots of wasteland of, of the, the empty docks, empty factories. And across this, there was lots of debris. And we decided to use that. We, we were on a dull and we didn't have much money. We couldn't afford to buy expensive synths and equipment. So we used these scrap metal as percussion instruments. You guys were known for performing in non-traditional venues. Tell me a little bit more about that. Obviously, as part of, of the aesthetic that we had, that it, it didn't fit really to play in traditional rock and roll venues as such. And because there was at, at that time an abundance of empty spaces, you know, we were, we were quite proactive in trying to find empty places that, that we could get hold of and, and use it as an environment. That kind of grew. The more the more kind of confident we got, and the more contacts we made, we kind of built that, and we started to to, to actually do that more officially. I mean, in the early days, it was more kind of on a, on, a, on like a squat kind of uh, basis really and then later we kind of made contacts we made good t- good contacts with british rail because british rail the, the railway network they had lots of empty railway arches all over the place so we ended up doing something for, uh, like a, a major event in um, the bishopsbridge maintenance depot in paddington we did railway arches in the titan arch and, and arch 69 in waterloo huge big arches uh, and then we ended up going on to play like Cannon Street Station, which is a huge commuter station in the in the centre of the city, like the financial district, uh, because we kind of uh, got a bit of backing from from British Rail on that. But we'd always looked. We, we worked with different organisations in different countries. We worked a lot with the NL Centrum in Amsterdam, and they had good contacts across Europe, especially in uh, Holland and Germany and Belgium. Um, so that they would always find us special places to play. Yeah, and so that, that became our, our aesthetic, and we kind of put that out, that's the kind of places we want to play. So, you know, in the earlier days, that used to be more possible. These days, it's far more difficult, you know, in terms of there aren't so many spaces because we've been turned into luxury apartments, and also um, the, the the kind of legislations, uh, the swathes of legislation that have come in over, over time have just meant like, for, for health and safety reasons, it's very very difficult legally to do things in these kind of kind of places. So um, we're still interested and we still work towards that wherever it's possible, but it's not so possible to, uh, today as it used to be. But you know we we have a, we we have a huge legacy of playing in empty factories, 
old yeah. quarries, car factories, Castles. car factories. I don't know. The, the the list is kind of endless, really. So you guys had had a fairly constant output up until your hiatus in 1997. So at that point, did you feel like you had to say all there was to say? Or were there other circumstances that led to the break? It felt like it did run its course at the at the time. We released the last two records on KK Records and we didn't really have a great uh, rapport with them and we weren't getting really too much support and we also had other things coming into our lives. It also felt politically uh, strange because our, our whole, the stretch of, of time from when we started till then was generally, was was under the Tories and we were kind of fighting this Tory uh, um, menace of the big Thatcherite and Reagan revolution, you know, which which we're seeing the kind of end game of now, really, I, I think. That was uh, strange because then Labour, Labour got in and we, we were kind of suddenly slightly optimistic. Uh, it proved ill-founded, but um, we were slightly optimistic that actually um, there was possibilities for something changing changing in a good way we felt like um, we needed to move on to do different things without without personal lives i think the political landscape was one thing but there was also you know we went through a huge a huge kind of change really in 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 the kind of digital revolution in the early days we were doing a lot of performances as we said in in large spaces we were doing it, we, we were kind of building big shows where we were just part of a show, working, collaborating with other performers, whether they be sculptors, doing metal sculptures or mechanics, doing doing other, other things, dancers. You know, we, we had we had lots of uh, other things happening in the shows. And then after the kind of digital revolution, things kind of changed sort of quite quite a lot in terms of in terms of what people wanted really. And, and you know, there came a kind of point where having large shows was uh, wasn't so kind of cool anymore. Now we just let's just pay the DJ, let's have one DJ, that's cool. And so it kind of got went went kind of that way. And I think for us as individuals we kind of felt that we had more that we that we wanted to do individually in terms of doing our own individual projects, in terms of collaborating with other people individually and just getting on with our lives and doing something different for a, for a while. So, and so, so that it kind of shifted for, you know, it was, it was political, but it was also a kind of economic or kind of social kind of change that kind of was a technological change as well. You know, when we came back, we started to integrate, you know, we, 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 after the digital revolution, we integrated more, had more electronics and worked that way. But I think for us, we always wanted to be alive. You know, it was always important that we were a very alive act. And there came a point where kind of live acts weren't quite as kind of fashionable as, as they were. And so, you know, we, we, we were kind of in a bit of a strange place, really, I think. Mm. Um, having kind of come back to where we are now, we've kind of, we, we, we've looked at all those aspects. And I think, We've kind of taken the electronics a lot further forward, but we've also rebought in the percussion in a way that it's as it's as powerful, if not more powerful, than it was in the original days.
you guys um, came back around 2014, uh, around the time where the DS30 film came out, remembering 30 years from the, the minor strike. We got a commission from AV Festival to do it to do a show knowing our interest in site-specific work they'd suggested these they're called staves it's a, it's like a huge pier that goes out into the river into the river tyne in newcastle it's like a big wooden roller coaster in the it's like a huge roller coaster except flat <laughs> it's massive but it was active it used to basically trains used to drive on it and it was a quarter of a mile long so it was a very long piece that went out into the river and trays used to drive on it and then offload the coal from the mines. And the coals would, coal would go down onto the boats. And then it could take four trains at a time. It was a huge structure. Um, and it's still there. It's, it's, uh, the, it was made from wood that was shipped over from Canada, I think. And, and it's just, the original wood is, is, is still there. But it's, uh, it's a relic now. And it's a monument to the mining industry there, which is completely gone and was despite uh, promises from the Conservative government, it was, was um, totally eradicated in that area and across Britain subsequently. So it seemed right that it was the 30th anniversary of the strike and that the structure was a monument to that industry. And the film also, because we worked during the miners' strike and we made a record with the South Wales Striking Miners' Choir, and we also worked with Kent Miner, Alan Sutcliffe, on um, produced poems and, and did readings on some of the records and live. So we had an archive of material sonically, but we also had an archive of material um, which was filmed during the strike. So we had our own archive, which had never really been seen or been let out to air. We decided to use that as well as do a lot of research and dig up a lot of historical documents and tell a little bit of the story of the, the mining history in the area and its journey up until the strike and and kind of then subsequently what that did to the area and to the to the landscape and to the psychology of the people. It was a research project, so we actually went and stayed there in the community and worked with people there and got uh, and collaborated with getting films and photographs and stories and sound sound bites and stuff. So we kind of built that into into what ended up being not really a performance, but it was more of an installation with a a film which you had to go up the river go under numerous bridges that some of them had not been opened for for years uh someone in the book described it as going up the river the, the boat scene in the apocalypse now when they t turn up at the kind of gi camp in the middle of the night it was kind of like that and you suddenly you were on the boat on this rough river watching this kind of hearing this installation and seeing the the, the, the images so it, it was it was a it was a powerful piece and we had searchlights scanning the river we had uh, sound systems all the way along the length of the pier as well so you as you came alongside you you had a soundscape coming off the pier you know across the water which was quite eerie and um and then when you got in front of the film then uh, on the boat then the boat kind of tried to hold still and then we had to film with on a huge screen on the side of this pier with a massive pa around it and there was also sound on the boat as well on the journey. Two years ago, you had your own festival, Assembly of Disturbance. Tell me about that. It was in a place called the Red Gallery, um, which had originally been 
part of a building which was a bank and it was like bank vaults that had kind of turned into a kind of like like a club area it started off as being um an idea of, to have an exhibition of our work largely based around text about manifestos and and and, and lyrics and st- stuff like that and then we would do a performance but it ended up becoming like a mini festival really we invited other other people to play we had djs there we had other performers dancers and it became quite an epic little little mini festival really so it, it, it was something that kind of carried on our, our our kind of tradition of kind of collaboration and uh, and kind of build on it build up from being just a band kind of show you know a bit of, a bit of our history and where where we've been and um you know and it was and it was a statement of, of intent as well really so um yeah it was it's a in, in a way it was a prototype event which we would love to be able to do if, if people would fund it to do it but i um, mean you know that's um that's something for for the future hopefully you mentioned a little while ago that that there was a period of of hope at least as as the country was shifting left and now you know in the in the past what five or six years it seems like it, across the globe uh, a lot of countries are, are taking a hard shift back to the right so i i wanted to give you guys a few minutes to since you're so politically minded to to share some of your thoughts about the way things are going whether it's in the uk or or the world in general it's disturbing the way old values or some of the values that we built up and and kind of cherished seem to be being thrown out and the way um ideas that we thought were banished to history, seemingly very old-fashioned ideas are now kind of current building and spreading across the globe. It's 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 very that's very disturbing. I mean, there 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 is definite reasons for it. I mean, the arrogance of the political establishment over the last well, I'd say thirty years. I'd say since the Thatcher Reagan initiation of this current whole period of kind of global economic system the arrogance of that that elite has has kind of led to this what's coming out of it is you know going the wrong way it's regression from the open acceptance open society that we we built up to a very closed and factionalized and kind of bitter divided population divided society and societies across across the world i think a new system a new new ideas are really needed and and if anything this is telling us that more than anything but the way is not in division the way is is absolutely in coming together and in understanding in enlarging our understanding of each other and getting rid of those differences the whole climate change issues is going to um, come to the fore and and be really the major thing that the world has to deal with pretty soon i mean it is now but um it's not seen as that by the elite but it but it's soon sooner or later it's pretty soon it's got to be the major issue and um you know we, we have to come together to to tackle that somehow at some point there's, there's all, there will be a critical mass and when the critical mass happens then maybe you know that's when the change will happen we haven't reached that point yet but the way things are going it seems as if you know there is going to be uh you know there will have to be major change 
was there anything else that you uh, wanted to mention or go over or bring up? Maybe what to expect with the new show. We've got we've got a good team of people um, working with us. Is Paul and I, who uh, the original founders of the test department. We've got a really good, great drummer, Zell, who is the rock solid bass for us. Our friend Greg on on electronics. Lottie, who does the uh, sound and wild mixing and dubbing up of the sound. And we have David, who presents a really quite spectacular um, visual side of, of the show. And the visuals are linked up with the... Uh, with the percussion, with the electronics, with the triggers, to really integrate everything. So that's kind of, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to doing that that in in the States soon.
On this episode, you heard Speak Truth to Power, Landlord, and Information Scare. Test Department can be found at testdept.bandcamp.com. Our opening music is Madmaker by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Join us next week as we chat with Shannon Funchess from Light Asylum. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Leaves, Jamie Duffy. Here's a message board post from Jamie after he was accused of riding coattails. September 27, 2004. Wow. I guess I spend too much time drinking and wrapping cables. So first off, thanks to my mother for giving up so much of her life and having me when she was 16 and raising me as a single parent in the 70s. Not so easy back then. But she did have help from my awesome grandmother. Thanks to Marsha Ove who helped me get my job at Trax. I owe so much to her. Thanks to my heroes that taught me when I was young. Alan Paul, William Tucker, Chris Connolly, Martin Atkins, Jared, Chris Randall, These people were nice to me when I was 20, new, and just starting out. Fast forward to 2004. Is this a response to my post months ago at the Hydrogen Bar? We've already gone through this. And by the way, Jared and I are still friends. I'm not really sure whose coattails I'm riding and who I'm forgetting. Maybe I forgot. I just found out about this thread today. And no, I'm not going to delete it. I'm a big boy. If you personally think that I'm stepping on people to get to the top or forgetting people along the way, send me an email, message me, step up don't be sneaky. Here comes the point where I go off, get pissy, and stroke my own ego. I wish I was writing some tales. That would have been a lot easier than the past 11 years of working my fucking ass off and starving to get where I am now. I have $26.50 in my pocket right now. I'm barely going to be able to make it to Seattle at the end of the week to start tour. Yes, my big, huge rock tour that I'm also working on. I've worked so hard, especially the past five years. I'm sorry if I met you and forgot you. I'm an alcoholic. I bust my fucking ass. I work hard and I play hard. The last pig face tour I did, my friend and monitor engineer got fired two weeks into the tour, and then I was the only sound engineer in charge of four bands every day, and I got the job done, and I drank as much as I could to numb the emotional, mental, and physical pain. After that, I went to work for Saves the Day. Was that selling out? If so, good. I hope it happens again really soon, since when is there something wrong with working hard and getting paid for it? Yeah, I'm a big fucking rock star. We took two and a half days out of our busy schedules last week to drive to Pittsburgh to play Cyber Wars. We knew that there weren't going to be a hundred people there, but we still went and played as hard as we could and tried to have a good time while doing it. The guys that were promoting the show were awesome people, and it helped us in the past. It was the least we could do. Is this because I do sound for a lot of bands? I'll mix whoever pays me. Most of the bands I do sound for, I like. There are many times where they can't afford what I usually charge, and I don't mind. I know what it's like. So many times I've worked for free because I believed in what the band was doing and because I remembered how much we appreciated it when people would help us out or give us a place to crash because we were on tour and broke. I guess what I really want to know is, why are you saying this? What's the reasoning behind this? What did I do? Who am I forgetting?